Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm Nathan, and joined by my co-host and friend, Darren Exo Academian. Darren, it's been a crazy couple of weeks uh, since we last had a chance to speak, and I don't know about you, but I've I've had moments of where I can't look away, and then moments where I just needed to step away and take a break. Uh, I know we're going to get into some interesting things today, but you know, how has it been for you the last uh, 14 days? Yeah, I would concur with that assessment. Um, you know, it's uh, like you say, on the one hand, there are, as I've been hinting at on Point of Convergence and social media, I feel like there's civilization changing things going on behind the scenes. So that's not no small thing, of course. And um, But yeah, I think you have to find ways to ground yourself. You have to find ways to, like you mentioned earlier, going for walks in the morning, you know, just things that somatically ground your body, meditation and whatnot, because you kind of have to both take the biggest perspective, you know, to be able to manage to think about and and fit in the things that are going on right now on a, on a grand scale. But you also have to, you know, live day to day and find ways to show up as a embodied being uh, in a healthy way. So it's uh, been an interesting uh, exercise in the two of those for sure. Mm -hmm. I was reflecting on when you and I first met over a year ago in a coffee shop and we were charting a course, starting to think about what we might want to do with this show. And of course, looking at the tools that each of us had in, in, in kind of talking about the phenomena the tools of uh, our religious studies, um, historical critical method, going through all of that process of uh, belief, devotion, analysis, critique, reflection, and various stages uh, throughout. And when we started Liminal Frames, uh, you know, I think it's pretty evident if you go back and listen to those earlier episodes we're working very hard to kind of give people uh, a multifaceted perspective uh, to, to give them ways to think about these issues from more than one vantage point. And we're going to get into some of that today from the standpoint of that kind of, of effort and work is really comfortable and was really comfortable for us. Uh, to be able to talk in abstractions and uh, traffic in the world of ideas. But once things start to get more real, quote unquote, uh, and, and more embodied, if you will, uh, in, in our day to day, the more we are confronted with this, you know, impending, imposing thing that is happening, and the less that we can comfortably hold it at arm's length, and just sort of casually discuss it as if it's a, another thought exercise. And I think that's a, a big part of what we want to get into on, on this episode is, is really how do we balance the, these things and, and recognize that, it, that, that a big part of this isn't just abstraction. Okay? There's some real stuff happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that we have reflected on our you know, religious studies history and whatnot because... I remember the same thing happening in those circles, right? On the one hand, you had people in the churches that I was involved in who were, you know, very passionate about what they believed and they felt like it was really impacting the way they lived their lives. They felt like they really had an, a sense of the overall architecture behind reality. 
and that really did determine the way they lived each day, right? And then we went into, you know, sort of religious um, theory, right, in academia. And then it becomes very much about, like you say, abstractions and a 30,000 foot view and historically, critically, you know, parsing all of that and, and basically um, making it kind of inert in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's also fun and entertaining and comfortable and um, enlightening. But yeah, the, the, the rubber hits the road when you have to find a way to join those two when you recognize that ideally you want to be doing both. You want to be able to parse and be uh, thoughtful about the largest grand scheme of architecture, but also think about how that changes the way you would live. And I think that what's really been hitting home for me, and I mentioned to this to you before we went on the air tonight, is how that juxtaposition has been working itself out. That I, like you said, last year we began with a much more, you know, comfortable uh, way of just theoretically approaching this and and kind of like the the main task we had then was to make sure you mention all of the different elements of the phenomenon, right? And and feel like you have a broad enough perspective. But what's hit home for me more now is to recognize that, yes, that's important, but not to forget at the end of the day that this should ideally change how we live our lives. That, as we'll get into tonight, religious history uh, influencing how people live their lives is really the same thing as the phenomenon. And so that is the real task we have in front of us. <laughs> One thing we talked about before we hit record as well was that a lot of the uh the, the big picture or the the gleanings if you will the bottom line a lot of that is in the uh many many accounts experiences that that if you've studied this for any length of time like it, it's kind of staring at you in the face and as you point out with the religious aspect of it as well you don't even need to look at ufology per se to to see the kinds of things that that I think we are concluding uh, or or leaning toward in in what is going on. And and for me, that's actually one of the most profound aspects of it. So it's not something that's just taking place in the 20th century or even recent history. Uh, or even in sightings that have been conflated to be, uh, you know, sort of airships or some other lights in the sky from centuries past. But it's a phenomenon that has occurred throughout human history and has been interpreted in different ways. And, and much of the way that I, if you look at kind of how the the thought leaders in this space have conversation about what's going on, I kind of think, well, that's what was happening back in the times of uh, the you know with the writers of the New Testament or the writers of the of the Hebrew Bible I mean they're they're, they're having they're having these thought conversations these philosophical kind of philosophical kinds of debates about what it what it is trying to do the hard work of transcribing experience into words uh, you, you know that 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 work is never done we're we're, we're doing it now and we were doing it then. And, and we, for whatever reason in modernity, we've kind of erected a wall between these two periods of time in a way. And we, we, we've sort of said, well, that was weird and different then how they looked at the real, at reality. Well, we don't do that now. We, you know, we work in, in science and we don't, we don't speak in the, those kinds of metaphorical ways. So, you know, kind of de demolishing the wall 
and allowing what's happening, what's being described, what's being experienced to to hit you head on in the face and like a like a bucket of cold water. Like you cannot ignore this feeling like it, it is there. It is not something just happening inside a, a philosophical exercise. Right. I mean, there's several things that come to mind as you as you go there. I mean, one is that I think part of what makes this particular topic convenient to talk about in a theoretical sense and sort of, you know, bounty about these different notions and hypotheses is that even the people who have experiences, often it happens in kind of an alternate state of consciousness or what they perceive as an alternate realm. Sometimes it'll they'll remember it as a dream, but likely because they were taken in the middle of the night and sedated in some way, whether it's, you know, chemical or some sort of consciousness control. And so even for them, it seems like somehow separate, distinct from the normal world, right? And then so a big part of their challenge is how do you reconcile those two, especially when you start getting little hints there here and there that you cannot keep those comfortably separate, whether it's something like you know, seeing grass or, or soil on the carpet because you realize you actually were outside last night and taken on a ship. It wasn't just a dream, right? Things like that. And I was also thinking about how one of the things I really was hoping we would get into tonight is, and we've done this a few times on this show, and that is like not make anyone comfortable. Like in, in other words, challenge both sides of the equation. And so I think we need to, so in the same way that we, for instance, would kind of really challenge some people who have a very simplistic notion of the phenomenon, just slotting in completely with angels and demons. Like it's just a traditional perspective, nothing else to it. You know, there's no nuance. We would question that. But on the, on the you know, on the other side of this coin, um, we would also want to say to the people who interpret everything as allegorical and symbolic, and the phenomenon is just a way of challenging us to be creative and think differently. And that's all it really is. And and everything else is just sort of these this, this puppetry that's not really real. It's more about how it changes our consciousness. I want to challenge that too. And um, it, it's easy for people like you and I who are in kind of intellectual circles and have kind of been in those circles for a lot of our life to, to stay there, right? To sort of stay in that sort of symbolic realm because you're able to dabble in it, even go into it to a great degree, but it not really changed the way you live your life. And not you don't really have to ask the people around you to change the way they live their lives because of it, right? So it's comfortable, it's convenient. But I think, again, one thing that's really hit home for me is that this phenomenon is asking for some sort of marriage between the two, some sort of integration to happen. So that's a big part of what my journey has been like recently. And um, the last thing I'll say too, when you were talking about, you know, church history and whatnot, I was thinking about how, you know, a lot of Protestants, for instance, and even Catholics, although they'll, they'll, they'll uh, you know, call on different church fathers and whatnot, and even different, uh, um, you know, collection of books to be included in a canon, right? Different for Catholics than it is for Protestants, but they still look to the past, right? And these people, these church fathers, these like, you know, hero figures to shape the future, right? We, we have this tendency, we've talked about the show on the show about this, I think early on in the first couple episodes, how we tend to uh, mythologize these ancient humans and make them something more than we are, right? Um, and so you have like, you know, the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, these these times in history where 
major decisions were made about what will be considered the word of God, right? And, and would therefore dictate how people should live their lives. In the same way in, in ufology, I feel like we do that with John Keel and Jacques Vallée. You know, we say, let's look back at these. And I see some people, right, who just like act like these guys, you know, are like the, the ufological fathers. And we should right. parse everything that's happening now through their great books. And they are great books. Right, but I think we shouldn't stop doing the work. I think when we come across data points that challenge some of those notions, we should be ready to challenge them in the same way that religious believers should do it of the the church fathers that they inherited uh, tradition from. Mm -hmm. Right, we've used uh, we've we've developed our own doctrine, and we use that as a cudgel, uh, not only against those that disagree with us, but it it, it also is a cudgel we basically hit ourselves over the head with um, because it, it, it ends up limiting us and, and narrowing the way in which we permit ourselves uh, to confront what is happening. Uh, and as you were talking about, you know, the experiencers, you know, I was thinking too, in order for them to, to even be taken seriously, they have to translate that experience, that raw experience, into language and archetypes that can be respected by the rational mind. And that transcription process is so lossy uh, and, and, and loses uh, a great deal of its uh, validity and veracity. Um, and, and, then we, and then what we've got then is a total abstraction that we just sort of share around like a mind virus in a way, uh, and and it, it it cleanses the experience of its of its power of its of its realness, uh, and reduces it to a flat anecdote. And I think that that that's really dangerous, right? That we need to understand, just as if 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 you yourself have had an experience that is incredibly profound, and you want to share that with other people. Like they're still not going to feel what you felt, no matter how good a job you do describing it. But what you felt was real. And that's something that I think if we are going to be uh, honest and, and, and earnest in our, in our search and our work in connecting with this, we have to be willing to take in that core experience and and look it straight in the face and say, this happened. This is real. And uh, I don't. I may not understand it. And it's okay to say I may not understand it. In fact, maybe we should fight the impulse to try to understand it as our first reaction to whatever it is that we're told. Right. I think um, I'm thinking of a great example here. I just recently heard someone make this point, and it was very well made, this point. I mean, it really hit home and how we do this in terms of what we're willing to sort of accept and believe without much question and other things that we're not, even if the general setup is the same. And I'll give you an example. What they were saying is that, you know, so you come home and you find your your little sister really distraught, right? And, and you say, what happened? What's wrong? And she explains that she was sexually assaulted by a bully at school, right? And you immediately feel rage building in you. You're like, give me this person's name. We're going to do something about this right now and make sure she's okay. And we're, we're going to like call the police. We're going to get, you know, law enforcement involved, right? Those are all your normal reactions. Now picture, same thing happening. You come home, 
You find your little sister. She says, some strange gray beings came and took me and sexually assaulted me and then brought me back into my bed. And I have missing time. There's other things that happened that I don't remember. Do you feel that same rage coming up? You know, the, the average person might right. not. The average person right. might go, I don't have anywhere to put this. I don't, this is not part of my grid. You, you say to her, are you sure they were like, they look like that? Could, could you have mistaken what you saw? You know, maybe did you have a dream? You know, like we start asking these kind of questions, right? That's a perfect example of we're willing to accept um, certain narratives as long as they, they don't challenge our core understanding of reality, right? And we, we're all guilty of this, right? I mean, it's we, we, we have these interpretive grids we move through the world with, right? And this is part of the the jarring nature of the revelations that are coming for our civilization is that almost everyone <laughs> is going to be confronted with things they didn't believe, right? Whether they're religious believers or atheists or you know modernists or whatever, humanists, you know, and everyone's going to be challenged, right? And, and so, yeah, th this this really should make us step back and and think about those things we hold dear and those things we assume about reality. You know, I made this point, I think maybe on the last, either this on liminal frames or on point of convergence, where, you know, we, we for instance, are, are happy to go into different spiritual pursuits, right? But only if it makes us feel better, right? That's generally why we do it. We don't generally go into it if we think it's going to make us feel worse. We sometimes talk about, I just want the truth, you know, even if it's not comfortable. But actually, when you look at our behavior, we usually want things that will make us feel better because, you know, modern life has its challenges already. So what I'm asking everyone in the audience to do today, along with us, as we sort of dive into some of these topics, is think about your presuppositions and not just your presuppositions, but the emotional um, undercurrent to those. It's not just that you hold them because they sound good conceptually but because they make you feel a certain way about reality and your life and your future and your origin, right? All of these things I think are in play and will be confronted in some major ways with revelations that are coming in the future. So let's let's get ahead of the narrative and let's do some of that tonight. Yeah, I love that. It, it is a deeply personal exercise uh, to, in a way, surrender yourself to what is happening, what what it what is going on, and allow that to uh, change and reverberate inside of you uh, to to create change. And you know, I've made this point many times that if if these kinds of experiences and 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 even if you know take the experiences out of the equation entirely, if 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 the thought of the end of your life as you know it doesn't change the way you live your life, doesn't change the way you look at the world, then you, you may need to do some more reflection on, on, how, on how you're lit living because uh, it should, you know, it should. And, and if you are honest and looking at the way that the reality that we inhabit functions uh, with the cycles of birth and death and and growth and decay and all those kinds of things, that that observation alone should change us and and change the way that we treat uh, others and and the planet and all these different things. And so, I, but I think we it, it really is this uh, 
crime in a way that that modern thinking has committed against uh, our, the world in that we have, because we have so neatly packaged all of these things into academic disciplines or thought exercises or, or frameworks or whatever, we've anesthetized them. We've not allowed them to, to, to impact us in any way, right? To, to, to actually deal with what they may instill or, or, or catalyze within us, within our lived experience. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think we, we need to be more frank with, with what we are encountering uh, and, and take it very, very seriously, um, you know, and, and treat people as you would want to be, be treated, right? Like imagine the experiencer who has the courage to come forward and say, this happened to me and knowing in their mind, because by the way, in their mind is the mind that, of that rational, you know, modern person saying you are crazy. So they know how they sound. They want to just be treated though, like by like a regular person, you know. So how do we bring that into our into our interactions? Not with only the, those individuals, but what is actually taking place in the world? Right, and I, to to your point there, I mean, again, this is why I'm always amazed that skeptics and cynics will say, "Well, these are just people that are mentally unstable, or they're people that are just looking for notoriety and fame and fortune." And yet when you dive into these experience accounts, often, like you just said, it's the last thing they ever want to believe about themselves, that, that, that this is actually happening, right? I mean, they want to believe it's just a dream. They want to believe it's a delusion. They want to believe it's like bad pizza and beer, you know, the previous night. There are case after case after case of people that go to, you know, psychologists and, and psychiatrists to try to be diagnosed as insane or mentally unstable so that they help some sort of chemical interaction and put them back on the right course because they'd rather believe that than believe that this is happening to them and that they have to present this to the world as something that's happening to them, right? Maybe. This this is the challenge. I think too, um, I was thinking about how we kind of, again, to challenge both sides of the equation, I find on the one hand, you kind of have the Again, the thirty thousand foot view detached. What what is the phenomenon trying to teach us about consciousness, and it being all sort of like just an endeavor towards that exercise, and that we don't really pay attention to the actual physiological, psychological, uh, you know, effects in people's lives. And I was thinking that's sort of the one side, right? But then you've also got the the flip side of like the sort of the David Jacobs of the world who go, oh, this is real, and this is just like an alien force trying to like take over our civilization, right? So they they marshal them into this sort of, you know, sci-fi epic of like uh, invading Martians or something, right? And they makes it even more spicy because they turn us into zombies, right? And, and yeah. hybrids kind of thing. And my point is that that too feels too, too easy and too simplistic to me. You know, I think what I want to ask people to do is to widen the, the aperture and, and ask, the biggest questions about the nature of reality, but also not just in a hypothetical, theoretical, you know, entertaining way as an abstraction, but what would that do for the way you lived your life? How would you live your life differently if you knew that? One of the things we talked about before we went on the air was how we have certain assumptions that we bake into how we make decisions. So we talked about how 
you know, the way we treat animal species, right? And the uh, decisions we make about what's fair to them, right? Versus our needs, we're used to being at the top of the food pyramid, right? And so that inherently changes how you make the decision, even if you're not conscious of it, right? But suddenly, what happens when, you know, billions of people across the planet realize we're not the top of the food chain? How do you feel then about how you treated animals? How do you feel about how that calculus might change if you realize the simple fact that you're not the top of the food chain? How does that immediately change the calculus, right? And if that's the case, why aren't we already thinking that way? What is it about our hubris that makes us come to that assumption to begin with? So these are some of the the big picture things we want to get into tonight. Yeah, that's such a good one. Um, well, I, you know, I want to maybe we can start with some uh, concrete examples from our our dependent church uh, Christian background is is you know things that that may kind of hit on what we're what we're trying to talk about here, and um, you know I'll, I'll go first because this happened you know pretty recently in conversation through my life, and that's the 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 story the biblical story of the flood and you know Noah's ark and you know creating this giant wooden ship with two you know creatures of uh, all the creatures that were on the land and the air and whatever, and two by two getting onto this giant ship and surviving the, this catastrophic flood. Of course, I was raised uh, to look at that entirely allegorical. <laughs> that was just, you know, kind of a localized thing. And, uh, you know, the, the whole two by two situation, again, an allegory just to describe, you know, kind of all of the creation that needed to be saved. And of course, if you're going to, repopulate, you got to have, you know, two. <laughs> so, um, that seemed like a pretty neat little explanation for me as a, as a child, uh, who looked around at the world and was growing up at the time of, uh, of NASA and shuttle launches and science doing amazing things and going, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like somebody built a boat and you know, just put some animals on it. Didn't they run out of room? How did they have enough food? And all the logistical questions that, you know, come to mind. Um, and and you know, so I held that perspective for a very very long time um, until I got older and then realized, well, geez, this flood story is uh, actually it's it's kind of everywhere. Like it's not just in the Bible, you know, it's it's all over the world. Uh, so there's something to that. And uh, well, if there's something to that, well, maybe there's something to to this ship concept, uh, you know, to this vessel concept. Uh, there's something to this catastrophe issue, you know. So that opens up a whole can of worms to my uh, intellect, which had just very comfortably boxed it away as a, a, a cute little children's story, nothing to be afraid of, you know, just something like we can learn a lesson from that, just like you would learn from a fable. Uh, now it's something where I'm like, oh, well, this may, this actually happened, you know, that clearly this left an imprint on the world and uh, it had real consequences. So uh, I don't know about you, but that that one really stands out for me as a as as one ripe for uh, for re reassessment. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one to jump in on because, like you say, it has so much application both in religious history, not just Christianity and Judaism, but you know Babylonian history and whatnot. You know, pretty much every ancient civilization and religious tradition had this notion of a flood, and kind of a resetting of the human population. And of course, that's been a big part of the, you know, the um, the mythology behind ufology as well, right? And experience accounts is these 
ongoing premonitions about a coming apocalypse, some sort of cataclysm, right? So we have that in both of those different, what we think of as different kind of modalities or different methodologies or domains. But in the same way, you know, we also have people like, uh, you know, looking into archaeological history and anthropological history, people like Graham Hancock and saying, you know, there's there's some evidence here, you know, in, in the fossil record, in the archaeological record, in the anthropological record to suggest that sophisticated civilizations existed before us and perhaps were wiped out, even perhaps by some sort of cyclical recurring um, cosmic event that we might be due for again. You know, that it might be every, you know, 10 to 12,000 years this happens. And I've gone into, in previous podcasts, the notion that that might not be just accidental. And I'm being coy there. I don't think it is. I think that there's there's a, a metaphysical plan that underpins when these things that look just like, you know, cosmic accidents actually happen. But, you know, to your point about what you, you know, believed about the flood when you were a little kid and the way you were raised about it, I remember, you know, on the one hand being in, in Christian circles when I was younger where people would like say, hey, did you find, here they found the, they found Noah's Ark, you know, like it's, it's up on this mountain, such and such, right? Um, and then, then went into a, a liberal progressive religious studies kind of program academically where we were taught, you know, we're not going to believe the silliness about, you know, a flood that covered the whole earth. That's not even possible, right? What this likely was, was regional floods. You know, it's like, you know, Lake Superior floods, right? And to them, that looks like the whole world. So they're just, you know, again, those poor people that didn't have a very scientific understanding, you know, either that or, or it's just totally allegorical, like you said, right? That it's just meant to be a lesson, right? Um, uh, sort of a hypothetical lesson. So yeah, when I reflect on my time in, in academia around religious studies and biblical studies, I was presented basically with two options, right? One is that these were literally, you know, demons and angels working on behalf of either God, the Father, or Satan. Either that, or option two is the entire thing was just people making up stories to try to make their, their lives seem more sensical, right? And they didn't feel like these... Uh, you know, they're at the whim of these atmospheric forces that they didn't understand. And because they didn't have a scientific background, they just made up stories, right? And these got passed down and eventually they began to be accepted as true, right? Because it gave you some sense of agency and some sort of sense of comprehension of what's going on around you. What was not presented me to me was option three, which is that the UFO phenomenon that is that is current in our day and age, and people are still having encounters just like the encounters that are depicted in the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, that's still going on. And perhaps what we're dealing with is a an outside intelligence beyond humanity, perhaps beyond the earth, whether it's interdimensional or extraterrestrial, what have you. But to them, again, within their mindset, they interpreted that as coming from that spiritual realm, right? Because they weren't from the earth as they people understood it. So that's another possibility, right? In some ways, that kind of marries our modern scientific understanding of a cosmos, you know, teeming with planets and the possibility of life with these ancient stories of encounters with like actual physical beings. There's nothing in those stories most of the time that suggests they're meant to be taken as just allegorical. There are times where you get some language that is uh, kind of 
steer towards having some extra symbology added in. So for instance, when we hear about, you know, someone being tempted like Jesus 40 days, 40 nights right out in the desert, we don't necessarily literally have to believe that that was literally like they, someone took a clock and said, wow, 40 days, 40 nights, that's crazy, like on the dot, <laughs> right? It's more like that was a phrase to mean a long period of endurance, right? The same way that I might say, hey, Nathan, have fun out there and break a leg, right? And later people will say, wow, that's so weird that he was wishing his friend to break a limb. <laughs> what kind of friend does that, right? You know, and and so this is where idioms and and things get lost over time, right? They get misinterpreted. But my point is that it can both be a real event, right? And also have some um, some local idioms and some of the culture of the time inevitably gets in there, just like it would for us, right? Mm-hmm. But but to not you know reduce it to these two binary options of it's either allegory or it's absolutely written and should be interpreted just as it was written, right? We, we have to somehow be able to parse all of that, you know, in a way that is not just imaginative, but really tries to deal with the hard realities of it, right? Even if it makes us question what we thought about reality. They had to do that. And I think we have to do the very same thing today with, with the phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you think about how the way in which the phenomena sort of punctuates experience uh, uh, you know on a, on a societal scale, not on an individual scale, we have a lot of evidence to show that uh, individuals experience aspects of the phenomena pretty frequently um, from some of the more mundane things that happen to the to the really extraordinary. But if we if we take into consideration those extraordinary events and how they are uh, interspersed, in society uh, more infrequently, uh, it makes a lot of sense that that those that experience it most closely, most tangibly, you know, they're translating, as I said earlier, they're translating that experience for everyone else who hasn't had it. And then as time goes on, as time does, and these things don't happen every day, the distance between that event and that moment and that person who experienced it uh, and and who's you know hearing that metaphorical uh, you know, sort of meme uh, to describe what it was like the, that distance grows and then it, and then it, and that and then time continues doing its thing and it it, it erodes and fades the uh, the realness of that of that experience uh, to where at some point it does kind of become nothing but an abstraction right that's true today, just as it, I think as we're arguing, is, is true uh, then, right? So what we're, what we're kind of saying here is let's take a fulsome view of everything we know about human experience that has been recorded in various ways, and let's look at it honestly. Let, let, let's not create these superficial uh, distinctions uh Let's take it very seriously. And if we're doing that, and if we, if we can come up with a, uh, a model that has explanatory power for all of that, both what, what we're hearing now, what we, what we read about then, well, then that model, if it, if it, if it works, if it explains things, or if it's, it has, if it's efficacious, well, we're on to something, right? Um, and that allows us, I think, to be more uh, uh, fair, just, um, 
honor what happened in our past. That's what we do now is we basically say, oh, that's a, that's a quaint story. You know, I'm just going to discard that. I don't really have to worry about it because uh, it talked about some scary things and scary things don't happen in the world that I inhabit. What happens in the world I inhabit are things that I know are, are sort of within this possibility space that it's very narrow and they happen on my terms or they happen on on uh, this uh, sort of state powers terms because it, it's you know it's r- r- running the show it does nothing interrupts our our life that's the that's the sort of fairy tale we tell ourselves but nothing actually interrupts the life that we have it's all very very laid out and predictable uh, yet we know and it's funny how quickly we forget that interruptions happen all the time uh, and they radically change uh, not only our personal lives but but the world at large so I think that's important too to not lose focus on the fact that these things happen and will happen. They are a certainty, uh, as much as I mean, as much as we might want to explain them away as, oh, it's not something I really have to deal with. Right, and so something I was I came across recently that I was impressed by was um, someone who was from like us, you know, studied um, religion but academically, right. And they they realized that sort of both options they were given, you know, in school and growing up kind of missed the boat, right? Because in the same way that we just talked about, they were sort of given the one option, like, you know, in Sunday school and, you know, during the sermon on Sunday morning that, you know, you take this as literal truth. And that means, you know, that the world is not that old and, you know, dinosaurs couldn't be real because they're not in the Bible. You have this very, like, you know, truncated understanding of reality that takes certain things literally doesn't consider any of the things we talked about with idioms and local cultures and a lack of a scientific understanding so you basically look at like the bible like some sort of thing that floated from heaven uh, in a finished form and it's you know it applies across time regardless of culture you're given that option or you're given sort of like this extremely abstracted away like cultural study right this um this parsed out cultural study of a people. And so by doing that, you you can say for them, this was true, right? And then that way you sort of like fit in with modern political correctness, right? Because you don't say they were kind of silly for thinking that. That's not, you know, considered kosher anymore. So you say, this is this is their their belief system, right? And But by doing that, it also allows you to be like an arm's length away from it, right? And you don't have to actually deal with any of those truth claims, right? And what this person was doing was they were able to see a third option, which is that when they read those accounts, again, and they compare it with modern accounts of the UFO phenomenon, they see the same thing. And this is something that is not offered in either of those, right? Like even in the ufology circles that we uh, are in a lot of the time, you don't have this marriage going on, right? You don't have this grappling with what does this mean about our origin as a species, right? You know, you think about this in terms of like the fairy paradox. I was thinking about this a while ago. You know, one of the the conundrums of, of modern life is the fairy paradox, which says that based on our cosmological understanding, you know, there should be life all over the place, right? We we shouldn't be that unique because even again, if if you know life bearing planets are even not the majority. There's so many planets and so many systems and so many galaxies in this immense universe that we can't even wrap our heads around the enormity 
why are we not seeing them right now? And there's some people will claim it's because they're too far apart. That's why we don't, you know, it takes too long to get here. They limit themselves to the speed of light and they are sure that our 21st century understanding of physics is the absolute, you no, know, we've, we've arrived at like, you know, total knowledge, which is so preposterous, right? When you think about it. But what I think about when I step back and go, no, the truth probably is there were civilizations around long before us, and they're so far beyond us that they can seed us, they can they can intervene and tweak our genetics, and they can, in kind of again to you know give honor here to Jacques Vallée, they can kind of in a in a in a way that doesn't uh, directly impose themselves on us in a kind of control system way manage our civilization, manage the evolution of our social structures, right? And our biological and physiological structures without us ever being any the wiser, right? That, that seems to me actually, now that I think about it, the more logical conclusion that because the age of the universe, um, there are local places that are much older than other places, right? The, the part of the galactic arm at the edge of the Milky Way that we're in is fairly young compared to other galaxies and even other component parts of our galaxy, right? The closer you are to the center, the older it is, right? So we're talking about like millions and billions of years difference potentially in the ancient civilizations. So you go with what we believe about cosmology that likely the universe is teeming with life. And then you say, the reason we're not seeing it is because we're just too primitive, right? It's They're not going to be sending radio signals, right? There probably is some sort of prime directive, that kind of thing. It says these are this little ant colony, you know, and, and again, you don't have to take that as like this, like they have this unfeeling, uncaring, I can just kick the ant colony, I don't care. I don't want you to think that. I'm just saying to them, we are this, you know, young genetic experiment in civilization history kind of thing. That seems much more likely than that we just happen to rise on our own through the fluke of natural selection. You know, it seems much more likely to be the former than the latter. And yet we're taught this modern myth, right? The same way that ancient religious people were brought up in a myth. We're taught this modern myth that tries to make us the center state. So in the, in the same way, ironically, that modern scientists are very critical of the Catholic Church and its silly view that the Earth was at the center of the universe, right? In the same way, we still put ourselves at the center and assuming that everything about our history is about us, right? That that there was there couldn't have been a civilization before us. Right? We've got to be the first one on the earth, and and furthermore, that we couldn't have been put here through this genetic process of some older civilization. We'd rather believe that it just happened by some sort of you know biological, physiological fluke of environmental conditions and chemicals coming together in such a way that it happened completely, you know, by random chance, basically. Uh, that just seems to me preposterous the more I think about it. Yeah, it's a very convenient fairy tale um, that allows us to, to sleep at night. Um, and uh, it, as, we've, as we've talked about many, many times, um, it's so, if you do any honest assessment of, of where we've been and where we are, uh, you can't come away from that assessment without seeing that whatever we think is happening is, is basically wrong. <laughs> you know, it's wrong in, in so many different ways. Um, the, the the I think the challenge is that we have, and we've we've touched on this in an episode as well, is that the explanatory power that was un, unlocked by uh, 
the scientific me method, for example, um, its ability for us to uh, gain mastery over the material world in ways that we hadn't in all of the centuries before it, uh, it took over our entire way of thinking. It, it transformed everything that we do and how we look at the world and our place in it. Uh, we're you know, at the, the top of the food chain, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what we don't realize is that while, yes, it's given us this incredible kind of sight, it's as if we just decided to put on a pair of binoculars and not see the rest of the world. We, we can see you know, in a certain direction with greater clarity, um, but we can't see everything else. And, uh, and, we, and now we've been mistaken what we're seeing in the binoculars for exactly as, you know, that, that, that's exactly what it is, what reality is. And so, you know, we're, the beautiful thing about, about the phenomena is that it does, as we've talked about you know, today, it, it does redeem the experiences that we have across you know, human civilization, that at least that we have recorded. And it brings them back into the, into the conversation in a way that is fair, uh, as if, as if it was happening right now. And I think we, we need to do that. If we're not doing that, if we're still looking at these stories from our past and saying, well, that's a quaint little, you know, kind of way of looking at the world and boy, they were super wrong. Uh, then I think we've missed the boat here. Uh, we really have to take all these things into consideration. And with that in mind, I mean, we, uh, I don't know how much in detail we want to get here, but in talking about getting uncomfortable, um, but, you know, let, let, let's take some of the, the things that happen in, in, you know, UFO experience or the phenomena experience and, uh, and let's kind of take that, them seriously, you know, things like abduction or hybridization uh, or um, missing time, you know, or all these things that we want to just say, well, that just happened in the person's head. You know, if, if these things are actually happening, now what, what is that? What does that mean? And how do we fit that within the context of everything we just talked about, you know, the, the kind of the span of human history that, that we know? Right, and it, it, it seems to me that the the more apt conclusion to come to is that the same intelligence or groups of intelligences that were seeding and shaping our civilization are still doing that today. And, and of course, why wouldn't they, right? I mean, we're not a, a finished product, and one of the things we wanted to get into in this topic uh, that we can in a little bit is um, just maybe how how off the experiment has gone, you know, like how wayward we are and what kind of civilization we've created and what, you know, our progenitors might think about that, you know, um, that that's something we want to get into as well. But yeah, to your point, absolutely. I think what this does first and foremost is it, it humanizes these ancient religious figures, right? And what's also strange is that, and this is just the way that human beings are really, really awkward and how we conceptualize things and how we group things arbitrarily sometimes. Because on the one hand, we kind of turn these ancient figures into heroes and larger than life, right? Rather than realizing they were just human beings like us. And sometimes when we read back the biblical history, there's some things ethically and morally that go on. You're like, eh, that's not less, that's not so cool, you know? And in our modern politically correct culture, a lot of that stuff would just not fly, right? But, but that's because they were humans and they were in a different cultural context that had different senses of what's right and wrong, different moral codes, 
that's been part of the evolution of consciousness, right? In the same way that we've talked before about, you know, our, our, you know, our future descendants will one day look back at our 21st century and say, wow, they were so barbaric. I can't believe they thought this was okay or they thought that was okay. I mean, if, for people out there, if you really think that we are finally now hitting the epitome and the summit of moral development, and we can just look back in judgment of everybody before us, but our descendants won't do the same for us, then I think you're just fooling yourself. You know, you're you're missing the point of the exercise, which is to say that these things never come to a resolution point. You all there's always further perspective that could help you even have a more subtle understanding of what is just and what is fair. And and again, we can get into that in a little bit in terms of how that might look differently in a cosmic perspective rather than a human perspective. Uh, but but these are things that people should wrestle with. And just to be clear, the reason why we're bringing this up in this episode is because there's a sense that there's something really afoot in our civilization right now. There's There seems to be a certain kind of interaction between these seeding, shaping intelligences and our civilization that will make us have to grapple with these issues sooner than later. So we're just kind of trying to get ahead of the game here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the ethical uh, sort of frameworks there and the perspective. I mean, you touched on it at the beginning too that we've. It's just it's and I understand it's very easy for us to do. We we put a human sort of ethical perspective at the center of our thinking. And uh, we have a very difficult time uh, considering other ethical imperatives that that don't put humans first, right? And so, uh, you know, when when you begin to invite those other ethical considerations into the equation, uh, it does help to, I think anyway, help to make sense of some of the uh, behavior that we have uh, heard about, read about, and experienced from these others. Um, as as awful as it may sound to us, it, it doesn't sound any less awful than the way we might treat, uh, you know, uh, an animal that we we've bred for food or uh, an animal that we have uh, bred for domestication. Uh, it's not something that they necessarily chose. We took these animals and and we corralled them and and uh, guided their behavior and and we had an outcome in mind. And sometimes we we killed them if the outcome wasn't proceeding in the direction that we wanted it to proceed. Now, all that said, we also, in the process of doing those things, and, and you know, this happens, has happened, and happens now, and will happen again in various stages, like we wrestle with that activity. You know, our our mastery over this, uh, the environment that we, we, we find ourselves in, our interaction with it, our engagement with it, our relationship with it, it does confront us. It's not just a one-way interaction. So what we do and what, what happens with what we do, the consequences of our behavior, those consequences do change us um, in, in, in many of the same ways that, that, that those things that we're trying to engineer or, or, or craft or whatever are, are changed. So it is a very dynamic process. Um, it's not just like a computer where we're, you know, kind of putting in some inputs and getting one thing. We're, we're reevaluating, we're assessing, and we're, we're changing this over time. And just as we do that with the things that we've interacted with, I think we can argue that a broader ethical perspective would, would consider the same. 
So these others are also doing something uh, the, the the same, just that we're now the ones being you know engineered or whatever. Uh, and, and in the process of their interaction with us, they're getting some things right, getting some things wrong, evaluating you know the interaction, the the, the experiment, if you will, and uh, and assessing it, and and our you know at probably at moments feeling like well, let's keep going let's keep trying let's make, make this work we maybe messed up here a little bit we messed up there but let, let's keep at it and then there are other times where I'm like you know what we kind of took a wrong turn here somewhere and uh you know the things that we thought were good um maybe not so much and maybe we just need to hit the reset and, and start again um and to us that sounds oh gosh you know why would we do that i can't believe it but um you know from their perspective it could be the greatest good, even for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that leads us to a part of the conversation we can get into now, which is around challenging some of the presuppositions and the assumptions we bring to these matters. I think some of the things that we're talking about today will be challenging for some people. For some people, it has a lot of gravity. But there's some other aspects that I think will will likewise open up some of the assumptions we bring in that open up new possibilities of, for instance, why a cataclysm or a resetting could be actually a good thing in the big picture, even for us, right? So these are things to think about. And and so I think we should get into that now. But to begin, let's talk about, like you kind of hinted at, you know, for instance, you know, we might as human beings, again, used to being at the top of the food chain and we see ourselves as, uh, you know, one step removed from the Godhead, right? Again, we, we, I sort of made that joke about the King of France, right? Kind of sees himself as one step down a few episodes ago. Well, we still kind of think that way, right? I mean, even, even, even reductionistic scientists who maybe don't believe that specifically, they still see themselves as the top of the food chain that we're aware of, right? And that inherently involves certain assumptions and it changes the calculus for how you make decisions. So we might rail against the notion of alien beings, you know, running hybridization experiments on us, right? And yet, what do we do with cats and dogs, right? We we have centuries now of of basically genetically experimenting with breeding programs to create these little tiny, cute-looking dogs that look like puppies for their entire lives because we. We like them when they look that way, right? Were we considering the best interests of those dogs, those wolves from ancient history when we made those decisions? I don't think so. Did they have a say in it, right? They might be sitting around going, who are these non-animal intelligences <laughs> that are doing these things to us, right? I mean, how dare they? And it's happened for multiple generations. That's us, right? So who are we to say the same thing? about these alien beings doing the very same thing, other than the only difference is now we're the ones in the position of what we perceive as the helpless victims, right? Yeah. So just step outside for a second and go, is there really any difference there? I've heard some people say, well, the difference is we have, we, we have civilization and art and culture, these things that really matter, right? We're different than the animals that way. So they shouldn't do that to us because we were different, right? We're more evolved, we're sophisticated. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe the animals or the dogs think about that, about the the things they've done, the, the bones they've gathered and put in a certain circle. They go, look at this work of art, right? And my point is that that's completely subjective, right? And, and it's relative. So we might think that these things we've built are, are amazing and, you know, 
uh, are a signpost to our great sophistication. But another intelligence might look at it and say, you know, you kind of rape the planet. You you treat it like a commodity that you can just take, 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 take. You weevil in your face with evidence that you're doing damage to the planet. Your political structures will try to obfuscate and deny because all you really care about is, is yourself and even what's going to happen in the next few decades of your life. Maybe because you have the assumption that all there is is the next few decades of this life, right? So all of these assumptions we bring to the table and all of the hypocrisy we exercise in the way we think about these matters and how it's different when we're the ones that are in the position that's not the top of the food chain is, is quite shocking when you really think about it. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. So mission accomplished, right? That I think that that's the point is that that thought exercise should make you uncomfortable. We're, we're asking the others to be better uh, than we are, ourselves are. Uh, we're asking uh, an ethic of them that we, I suppose, in some ways, like aspire to, but don't actually hold ourselves accountable to. Um, and so we, we kind of easily t take the position, well, they're, you know, they're advanced, they're doing these things that we can't do, they're this technology that we don't have. And so, therefore, their ethic is more advanced than ours. They've They've uh, jettisoned the horrible practices that that we observe, uh, and we and they're just more evolved, and so we, we don't have to worry about them doing terrible things to us because uh, you know we're sentient, and you know they're sentient. We're kind of pals in that way, right? We're on the same sort of level. Uh, it's just a, it's a it's a weird. It's a it's a kind of wish fulfillment in, in a way. Like if you're pondering that the the power dynamic, like that's what you would prefer, right? You would prefer that they would be really nice and and not mess with us in the same way that we mess with other things. Um, but, you know, realistically, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, and I don't want to sound too sort of gloom and doom here um, because, uh, you know, from my perspective, and I think you, you share this perspective, um, the the way things are, the way reality truly is, um, it's not like uh, we're it, it, we're just subtracting, you know, through this process. Like if, if we're if if they're culling humanity or whatever it is, if they're doing bad things to us, like it's just a net subtraction. Um, that there is, uh, you know, kind of a constant state of process, a constant state of development, not only for ourselves but for them, for the cosmos. Like it's. It, it's 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 always ongoing, and I think that that's if you if you can ad adopt that perspective, then it changes the way you relate to these kinds of behaviors. It, it changes the way you relate to 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 the apocalypse, if you will, um, you know, to, to the end of your own life, which is you know, your, it's your personal apocalypse, right? It changes your relationship to that. And our religious traditions have really talked about this for a long time. You know that they've, got, they've tried to get us to think more broadly about life and and our future and what comes after our life as we know it, and and to let that uh, broader perspective inform how we live. And I think that that's an important point to make here is that that you know it's not just the end. It's not not a period to the sentence, and and we're done. You know, we, we yes, we we can we can mourn the things that we might lose, including our own lives and you know all the human civilization as we know it. We can 
certainly grieve that, but we can also celebrate the things that that will come after that, not just for ourselves on our journey of development, but also the journey of these others who are involved in this process, because it is a journey for them as well, it is a learning moment for them as well. Right. And and before we, we sort of really delve into that part, because that's sort of like at the, the larger cosmic scale, which I do want us to get to, I just want to make a couple points in terms of what's happening in the here and now, and even how to look at that differently, right? So again, some people look at the notion of these others coming in genetically uh, doing things to us, right? Without ever asking, right? That's often what is said, right? And yet again, we, we do that, right? We we will try to, you know, if, if there's a um, a hornet species or a wasp species that's that's particularly violent and aggressive, we will breed it with a less aggressive one, right? So we eventually change the behavior of the entire species, right? Now, you look at modern Homo sapiens sapien. We are a very still aggressive species, right? We still are in some ways a cancer to the earth, right? Do we, can we really say in an honest assessment that we are leaving the earth in a better place than we found it? I don't see how any of us can answer that question in the affirmative, right? So for these others, maybe the, the less invasive way to deal with this up until now has been rather than resetting the entire enterprise, like rather than just wiping out that wasp species, right? That's too aggressive and is causing havoc. You go in and you try to tweak it, right? You try to you try to breed out some of the aggression, right? So it changes its behavior. That way, it can continue to exist. It can grow, but it it also mitigates some of the damage it's doing to the larger environment, right? And you could say the very same thing about what's happening with us. In fact, I would say that's what's happening with us. That we've talked before about this notion of them sometimes being depicted as having less of an emotional quality, right? They seem less emotive in general. And there seems to be evidence that that's partly because they over time recognize that some of our you know, emotive flare-ups are part of what causes the worst of us, right? In terms of our behavior. So they, they sort of walked a trajectory where they sort of bred that out of themselves. And like you said, because you can you make progress. Sometimes it's two step forward, one step back, right? We shouldn't assume it's all positive and net positive. So there is some suggestion that some of them even recognize they lost something important when they did that, right? Um, becoming Vulcans is not the ultimate, right? There's something to this notion of Spock who is a bit of both, right? And there's some suggestion that partly what they're doing is trying to amend and repair some of the, the trajectory that they actually regret now. They recognize they lost something. But in saying that, we can't deny the fact that, hey, getting rid of some of our most aggressive tendencies could be a good thing, would be a good thing. I don't know how you can argue with that. Now, I understand that it's uncomfortable when you say, but I don't remember signing a contract. Nobody like contacted me. I didn't get an email. You know, This just happened. Sure. I totally get it, right? But really, again, the shock to the system there is that we are on the food chain just like the rest of the animal kingdom, right? And so when a higher species comes and does this, maybe it doesn't occur to them, the simile doesn't occur to us to send an email to, you know, the 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 wolf species were, you know, changing in some way. Now, I'm also not trying to completely excuse the behavior or say that 
wouldn't it be nice if they communicated? Sure it would, right? I think that, like you've hinted at, they have growth to make as well. The evidence I've seen, even in some of the interaction with the Greys, is that they have aspects of themselves that are surprisingly different than us. And they have a lack of understanding of emotion and um, some of our, even our sexual nature, which which plays into why they show such an interest in that, even in the experiments they run. And it often, I think, doesn't occur to them uh, that that maybe impacts us emotionally in a way that would be better if they did it differently. But the reason they don't is because they don't have that capacity. So they don't, they can't relate, right? So part of the future of our interaction with these other intelligences will be about learning about these things about each other, right? And part of the, even the task with hybrids is to be able to serve as an ambassador between the two different species and help each other understand each other because they have a bit of both, like Spock again, right? So these are things to keep in mind. Now we can go in a minute to the, the bigger cosmic picture and how even the idea of resetting a civilization maybe isn't as bad as it first seems, which I know will sound outlandish to people. Sure. But um, but first I wanted to just point out again some of the ways that even the tweaking they're doing could be for a greater good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, and and look, I, I romantically, I like the idea that we could... Uh, you know, kind of work things out, right? <laughs> I mean, just like the, uh, I'm sure the chickens, the chicken, you know, farm or whatever would like to work things out with with their, you know, uh, overseers and not have to be slaughtered for food, right? Like, we just talk this through and it may not have to kill us off here. Uh, there's some other way we can go about this. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's, that's very appealing to me. Um, but... You know, I, I, regardless of how we want to look at this, I think, you know, we, we'd be remiss if we just weren't honest with folks that, that and, and, and recognizing how difficult it is to kind of uh, internalize this, right? It's difficult to hear this kind of conversation and not come away with a lot of different feelings, you know, like uh, grief, anger, uh, frustration, those are total normal, re- you know, normal reactions. Um, you know, and thinking here too about when Elizondo used the word somber, how much, uh, you know, sort of airtime that took in the podcast circuit and, and everywhere else. What does he mean by that? You know, are they, well, I mean, it could, could in part be some of these uh, things, you know, that if not the big picture, at least the reality of some of these uh, smaller uh, interactions that, that have taken place, you know, where, where human beings have absolutely been taken against their will and things have been done to them and, and they live with that trauma and they had absolutely zero recourse uh, to, to heal from that, uh, not only from the others that took them, but also from the society which entirely rejected them uh, and what they uh, felt you know, were courageous in, in sharing that, that really took to place. You know, we, we, they've essentially been... Uh, traumatized twice, you know, not only by these others, but by the, their fellow human beings. Um, right, but I think so, yeah. one thing to point out there is that it, it's a mixed bag, right? And I think it's the mixed right. bag nature of this that confounds people. Because on the one hand, yes, they're not sending an email. You didn't get a doctor's note saying, don't forget, you know, we got the augmentation going on, you know, Tuesday night. Uh, yeah. That doesn't happen, right? Um, what happens is 
just suddenly these beings show up and you're, you know, suddenly maybe in a, on a craft somewhere and lying down on a table and some telepathic message just told you to get up on the table and you don't even know how to disobey it because it's a thought in your head, no different than an impulse you might have to go to the bathroom, right? Same sort yeah. of notion. So on the one hand, that feels like such a loss of agency and sovereignty, right? But on the other hand, sometimes those same people that talk about those kind of traumatizing events come back and find that they start having precognitive dreams or they can hear the thoughts of other people and notice that their mouths are not moving, right? They're actually becoming telepathic. Yeah. So what we don't usually hear is kind of a dumbing down process, right? It's not a um, reverse augmentation, right? It's, it's actually augmenting our intelligence, usually augmenting our abilities, tweaking us in a direction of making us more um, you know, empowered in some ways to interact with reality in a way that, you know, is more, um, has more robust ability uh, and capacity than we used to have. And also in a direction that hopefully will make us interact with each other differently and with the surrounding environment differently, right? So <laughs> I think both are in play here. Yes, would it be nice in the future to have some sort of interspecies dialogue where we help them understand that, you know, there's ways you could do this differently, but also recognize that the the main thrust of what they're trying to do is in our best interest, right? So that that can definitely happen, right? Even for human beings, when you go to a different culture sometimes, you might offend that culture ways you never intended because you just don't understand the cultural norms, right? You go to some parts of the world you just don't shake shake somebody's hand with a certain hand because that hand is you know used for something else when you have to go to the bathroom in some parts of the world, right? And so even if they don't do that anymore, right, use their hand for that directly, it's still part of the culture that you just don't do it. It's a sign of disrespect if you don't. But you might violate that without ever being aware of it, right? This can happen even more so when the genetic makeup is different when the individualistic motive nature that we have as human beings is largely absent in some of these others, right? That creates issues, right? And some of them are also kind of like more like androids, right? Like biological, um, you know, they're kind of like this amalgam of biology and android. And so that might have just never been part of their programming, right? Because why would it be? Because that wasn't part of the intelligence or consciousness or experience of the beings that program the androids, right? So in the same way that we talk about AI will ultimately still reflect our consciousness because we're the ones programming it, right? In the same way, their AI, their androids have some of the same things going on. And I'm even aware of situations where, and I think I've talked about this before, where people who end up having hybrid children are able to communicate to those hybrid children who have a human component and say, hey, could you speak to the others, the greys, and let them know how this makes me feel when you suddenly show up, you know, without warning in the middle of the night, how much trauma that causes. And I've actually seen where that's changed the behavior of the greys. They literally change how they interact once that becomes uh, part of their awareness because the hybrid is able to also communicate with them, right? So you have this bridge of understanding. So I'm both not trying to romanticize this, nor am I trying to explain it away either. You know, like I think we do have room to grow here in the interspecies relationship and communication, but also recognize that it's not black or white, that even when there's things that are absolutely traumatizing for some people, 
they can still be meant for some greater good. Um, and I think we have to keep both those things in mind uh, when we consider the entire endeavor. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I struggle with, um, we've had conversations on this, uh, so it might be worth getting into this a little bit on the show, and that's this um, deep sense of loss that I have in when I was new to the topic and reading about the grays, you touched on some of their characteristics and, you know, looking at that and going, well, I don't know, that doesn't sound like it's really advanced. It sounds like we're kind of taking a step backward. You know, it sounds like we, we, if that's our future, we're, we're kind of less individualistic and more, you know, communitarian. There's no, seemingly there's no art, there's no music, whatever it is. Like, it seems like a pretty, you know, comedy. It seems like a pretty crummy place to be. Everybody's literally gray. Uh, with big eyes, like it sounds awful uh, from my vantage point. So, uh, you know, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to our notion of uh, one that, first of all, that feeling, but also our notion of of time and trajectory and, uh, you know, how that comes into play with, with what might be happening here. Well, I think one of the things we talked about before we went on the air was this um, this way people tend to absolutize these notions. They say either they're individual minded like us and they value they value uh, you know human rights and in, in other terms uh, individual rights or they're a hive mind and they're just unthinking you know like a bee colony or something right They don't they have no notion of what's best the best interest of an individual bee. they just do whatever serves the colony. And we don't like that notion right. Uh, especially as Americans where we have this kind of rugged individualism as part of our you know cultural ethic. But my experience is that the, again, I also want to give my usual disclaimer. There's different groups of these others. We don't make want to paint the grays as if they're just one group. You know, you mentioned they're all gray, but there's no monotone in terms of their um, their agendas, their backgrounds, their you know, it's 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 there's a wide variety, right? Some people have very positive experiences with groups of the grays. Other people not so much. But all that said, what I think the literature points to and some of my own experiences is that they still have individual personalities in a way, right? Not so much the android types, but I'm talking about the other ones, um, have individual personalities, but they can also connect in with this larger grid, this larger matrix, where they can also sense the the consciousness of the larger whole, right? And we, you and I talked before about Donald Hoffman, his notion of conscious agents, right? And you can take one binary or one individual conscious agent as a human being, but you put them in interaction with another human being and you now have a new conscious agent that arises from that. You can keep scaling that up until you get to eventually the cosmic intelligence, which in some ways is the sum total of all conscious activity across the history of the cosmos. You could also call that God, right? That's what I'm saying goes on with these ones, that they they both have some individuality, but they also can can plug into and act from what's in the best interest of the whole, which is a good thing. If we could do that more, if we had more like felt understanding, not just conceptual, but felt understanding of why certain action on an individual level would actually hurt us as a species or hurt the planet or the larger environment we're a part of, the biosphere we would probably change our behavior. So this is a good thing. I think we do want to move towards more of this understanding. I think that's partly what they're even 
trying to augment us towards, right? They're trying to, they're trying to uh, make more porous the boundary between us and them and us and each other and us and everything else in reality so that it changes the calculus for how we make decisions. Because right now we have a frightening, uh, you know, a startlingly uh, narrow range of parameters by which we make decisions about what's good, right? What's in the best interest. It's really that those parameters that need to be expanded, then we will just by our very nature of that change, we will alter how we make decisions, which will be in the best interest of the whole. So these are things to keep in mind. You know, it, it's uh, like you say, when you first hear some of the stories, you, you sometimes notice all the stark difference and it seems like an, a net loss, right? But again, I've even come across experiences where the greys actually show curiosity, right? I think part of their mishandling of us is sometimes still motivated by curiosity, actually. So they still do have these, these things that we would consider valuable, right? And then they're not just these unthinking automatons that, uh, that we might paint them to be. So which shouldn't be surprising to us, right? Whenever you encounter, for instance, different cultures, right? Um, when you look at humanity historically, we tended to stereotype groups at first, right? And said, oh, they're all like this, right? And then you actually meet some people from that culture and you go, actually, there's a lot more you know, diversity than we first, first realized. And it's usually our poverty of understanding um, that, that makes us group people together that way. Well, I think the same thing will happen eventually in this kind of interspecies process too. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps too, one thing that you've touched on that this makes me think about is the kind of imprinting idea that there's the there's a common uh, heritage or legacy or connectivity between who, who we are as humanity to who these others are, uh, even though that they may look very different from us. Um, they're there might be some several things that we we share in common um that that are easily relatable um and and let's not forget as well that one of the most common types uh, that have been experienced in in experiencer uh, anecdotes or stories are, are the human types you know that look just like humans and i watched uh james andoli did a supercut of all these different uh, you know, they're, they're living on this planet kinds of uh, stories from different individuals. And, um, you know, that was really, really powerful and, and, and it may, makes you think a lot harder about the, uh, the human family, uh, what makes us human, um, the things that we might be holding on to that are actually getting in our own way, um, and, and how the experience might be way more expansive than we want. To, to, than we can imagine it being, uh, but we're we're so kind of used to clinging on to things that we're comfortable holding on to, but we can't imagine a world without them. But the world without them might be far better. Absolutely, I think. Yeah, I remember C.S. Lewis used to talk about that when people, you know, are are sort of like pigs that like like the muck, and they they dread ever losing the muck, right? And to us, we go, well, boy, it's just muck. Why would you want that? But to a higher species or to a another sort of dimensional level of reality, that's kind of how they might look at the things that we cling to and, and you know, are so, uh, you know, focused on, on not losing. The last thing I sort of want to touch on here that we can sort of get into the last 10 minutes here or so is, because I know we, we intended to get here as well, is that the, 
the cosmic calculus, right, around why this might be happening and why there might even be um, a situation we're in now where, you know, we're at a major turning point in our civilization, right? And there may be a couple options on the table. One is that we we wake up and change the way we we do reality, the way we run our civilization, the way we conduct our affairs, both with each other and with animal species and the planet and whatnot. Or maybe a reset is is, is in play, uh, kind of like what maybe happened 10, 12,000 years ago that we see some evidence for. And what I would want to say to people here is that, again, I think we need to get beyond our narrow thinking because we are going to reiterate no matter what happens, whether you you know live a nice full life, get to 90 or 100 and then die and move on, you're going to have a different iteration then. And your consciousness will again have an opportunity to grow. And I would suggest to you that part of the, the universal architecture is that you are shuffled around into the next situation that will be the most conducive to your growth. And whatever lessons are really uh, the most significant for you to learn, that's the kind of scenario you'll be put into, right? Uh, and so that's going to happen regardless, whether it's, uh, you know, you live 90, 100 years and then you die, or even if there needs to be some sort of civilization level reset, then same thing. You know, people will be moved into different iterations, maybe even different civilizations, different physiological forms, right? That will both serve the individual consciousness that, that's growing as well as serve the larger biosphere. And when I say biosphere, I don't just mean the planet here. I mean like the cosmic biosphere, right? Because we are a civilization now on the cusp of going out into space. You and I have talked about this in our private conversations. You know, it's one thing to let a, uh, like we, we talked about, for instance, if a, a major Ebola outbreak happens right in one part of the world, or some imagine some sort of virus even worse than that, right? And it's so virulent and it's so deadly that sometimes, you know, civilizations have to make a decision. We are better nuking or firebombing that city than taking the risk that that virus could get out and kill hundreds of thousands or millions of people, right? In the same way, you have to look at our civilization and realize we are now entering an age where we are getting ready to colonize Mars, right? And I already brought up the notion that the Earth actually is a being, right? It, the Gaia spirit's a real thing. Part of, I think, what brought these others to us now and part of what the situation we're in now is because they also consider the needs of the Gaia spirit, right? And we are kind of like a colony of fleas, an infestation that have completely forgotten our place in the enterprise, right? So not only are we doing that to the planet that we're on now, but we're getting ready to import or export that to other planets, which are also, you know, cosmic beings of a certain sort, right? Every, every this is part of the, the metaphysics I discussed a, a few months ago that every star and, and planet and, you know, cosmic body you see actually has a, a metaphysical identity to it. It's not just this inert dead matter. That's part of the, you know, unfortunate consequence of physicalism is that it's it's not made us even calculate the damage we're doing. But these others have to take into consideration the damage we've done to the earth, the damage we've done to each other, the fact that we're about to export this insanity into the rest of the cosmos. And they have to do some real soul searching there and say, either we need to really help these beings to change the way they do things, 
or maybe a reset is necessary because they're going to reiterate anyway. These these souls are going to move around, shuffle around that will serve the best interests of those individuals and the collective whole, right? And and so what I would leave people with is this notion that when you really think about our civilization, not so much the good things, but all the not so good things, the way that a powerful elite still oppress the majority of the people, the fact that wealth is hoarded by a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage, right? We we talk about it and joke about it, it becomes a meme, right? The 1%. And yet this is the reality, right? This is what we want to say to the cosmos. Hey, we're good to go. Help help us export this into some other place. Why would they, right? Um, there's just so many things about our civilization at a core level that I think when you really deal with it, and even when you've had experiences with other intelligences, what it does for you is it gives you new insight into looking back at your own civilization and your own species and you go, man, that's pretty messed up. Like, and it gets to the point where you really ask yourself, at what point does the well-wishing that, that next decade will do better or that, you know, uh, 20 years will do better when really what we're seeing is just increased technologically technological capacity to do damage without a requisite growth in consciousness, right? And so we're just becoming more dangerous to ourselves and everything else while we're also stagnating. So it's not even like it's a status quo. We're getting more dangerous while also not really growing collectively in our consciousness, nor really fundamentally addressing the core problems in our civilization that are about to export this everywhere else. So this is the scenario we're in. So on the one hand, I want to encourage people that, you know, you are much more than this iteration. You are here as a human being having a temporary experience as a soul that goes through many, many iterations, right? So keep that all in mind and really think about how much this is worth keeping going. And if nothing else, I hope we would all recognize that there needs to be some systemic changes to take place to make it worth keeping going. And, and that's what I would leave people with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I want to say too that there, the iterative nature of the process is is very very important, as you said. But there are also no shortcuts. Uh, you, you know, you, you can't somehow hack your way to the next level. Uh, you know, just by you know, cutting short one iteration and moving on to the next one. Like if you're not learning, if growth is not happening the growth still needs to take place and will in fact take place. Right. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I have been most of my life and I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, we might see some real uh, lasting change take place. I think that, that most human beings have a, have a shared sense that something is wrong, that, that, that something isn't right in the way that our, uh, society functions, and uh, and unfortunately, m many of us also share the same sense that of powerlessness in the face of that uh, inequality and injustice and and brokenness. Like we recognize that something isn't right, and in fact, many of us. I mean, how many of our stories are uh, that that we love to watch in film and, and TV or whatever? are about, you know, dystopic situations that upend the norm and, you know, reset civilization and you know, kind of addicted to that because 
you know, it, it points to this this cancer that we have inside of our of our world that we cannot seem to excise. That we almost want to invite a catastrophe to to right this wrong that that has occurred, uh, because we we at the individual level feel that we can't actually make that change happen. It's going to have to happen on a larger scale. Um, you know, we, we we joke about it, right? Like just end it now, you know, because it's it's just not it's not going well. So I think that there's a, there's an energetic, um, an intuitive uh, understanding that that's taking place there. You know, I, I want to emphasize that too that 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 what we have uh, read about in religious tradition about things like apocalypse and whatnot and. You know, and and the and the doomsday prophecies that we're all familiar with, we grew up hearing them. Uh, you know, the year two thousand or twenty twelve, whatever it is, all these doomsday things. You know, we all kind of say, well, you know, all that stuff came and went, and it's not going to be any different, perhaps. But the energetic uh, truth of those stories is still very, very real, and I think ha- there's an imprint in a way of the future on the present and the past that, that we intuitively understand and tap into. It's not something we, we know at a, at a, at a cognitive level that, that we would go, Oh, I learned this in a classroom. It's something that we know on a deeper level, uh, that, that permeates kind of how we experience life. And, and I, and I, I, I think we, that that is very real, very true, uh, and is a sign it's kind of that inner voice in a way that, that that's saying to you, like, you know, this isn't right. We need to fix this. How do we f- fix this? What can be done? Can someone help us? Right. And I would leave people with this thought. You know, often you've probably come across this meme that says, if you knew you had one week to live, you know, how would you live differently? And most of us answer, well, I would live differently, right? That would change my perspective. And yet we often say, so why don't you live that way already, right? In other words, why not live with the, the largest perspective in mind, the deepest truths in mind, right? Not getting caught up in the, the you know, the just the, the mundane of the day, right? And I understand there's challenges with that. But what we all in sort of encourage each other with those kind of sayings is, you know, try to live with the largest perspective in mind. Try to live with the greatest end in mind. What would you do if you could and if you had that perspective? In the same way that rather than worrying about whether some sort of reset is in our future or not, why don't we live today differently, right? Both as individuals and the decisions we make, the things we spend our time doing, the way we relate to each other, and also as a collective, right? When each one of us interacts with another one of us in a grocery store, at a gas station or whatever, in our you know corporate meetings when we're doing remote work or whatever, we have the opportunity to embody this differently. Nothing stops us from doing this tomorrow, right? We don't have to wait to, for an alien species to say, hey, y'all need to do something different here. We can just do it now, right? Nothing stops us. So in the same way that we think about that in terms of how would you live differently if you as an individual had one week to live, how would we as a civilization begin to think differently, live differently, embody being a human differently if we knew that the future of our civilization was at stake, and more importantly, that we lived from this perspective the great of the greater cosmic good. What would we do differently? And if there's something we would do differently, why not do that now? Yeah. 
Well said. Well, thank you for listening uh, to this episode. It's been a, a great conversation. I always enjoy it, and I hope that uh, that folks enjoy listening as well. Uh, we look forward to hearing your comments and uh, and also suggestions. If there are topics that you'd like us to hit, we uh, we certainly love to hear what those are, um, and we'll try to incorporate those into future shows. Uh, so we'll leave, leave you with this. May the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.